0: on
1: VFBS With
2: NATO is sending more troops to Eastern Europe, the biggest shift in strategy since the end of the Cold War
3: This is something we do as a response uh, to the aggressive actions we have seen of Russia violating international law.
2: Cross-party MPs say Britain could be doing much more to fight IS. Jordan, the dark question in Whitehall and insult to injury for Britain's service veterans. Britain is to send 1,000 troops plus equipment to NATO's latest quick reaction force prompted by President Putin's military strategy in Eastern Europe. It'll also deploy four Typhoon jets for air policing the Baltic states. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg told BFBS he expects the numbers of troops in the readiness force to more than double.
3: The current size is around 13,000. I expect that they will decide on a force which will be around 30,000. Part of that, I expect, will be the establishment of this uh, spearhead force, uh, which I expect will be of a size around 5,000.
2: And he said it is necessary for NATO to adapt to changing circumstances.
3: This is something we do as a response uh, to the aggressive actions we have seen of Russia, violating international law and annexing Crimea. And uh, I very much. And the line that this is uh, something we do because we have to adapt our forces when we see that the world is changing.
2: Well, I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. And we heard the first inkling of this back at the NATO summit in Wales in September, but it's got bigger.
4: It's got much bigger because they're now actually saying, we can do this, and this is what we need. One of the problems they had in, uh, back in uh, September in Wales was that they, want, they wanted to do it, But then they had to decide where they could do it. Now, for example, if you're going to have a spearhead, that is a quick reaction uh, uh, force, how quick does it have to react? Mm -hmm. Well, the idea, therefore, what they've come up with is that within 48 hours, these guys are on the move. And to move 5,000, a spearhead force of 5,000, which is effectively a brigade, that takes a lot of organization. So you have to say, where will they move to? Mm-hmm. Eastern European places, but which Eastern European places depends where the so called threat comes so from so we 're
2: talking perhaps Poland Romania, Bulgaria at the moment. but why
4: would you be talking about that is because you have to set up a forward based command and control center, mm. and that the, that 's that's the sort of homework that 's been done since what, September.
2: What might the spearhead force actually do if the situation gets worse in Ukraine? How might it be used
4: well the first thing it's a spearhead force so there's a quick reaction force, and therefore it is act, actually there is a deterrent. And President Putin but, will not what, like mean, this at all. What, as a well, concern. it means so it, Being look, on the
2: ground in Ukraine, or okay. What exactly? Okay.
4: Suppose you've got a border, and you've got incursions into a border, and you've got a request from, let us say, Ukraine. Ukraine, we are being overrun at this particular point, mm-hmm. uh, and, a, and a city of civilians is being overrun. You can actually, if you're willing to, take the decision to send this fast reaction force, 48 hours to that city to be the opposition to secure highways to secure most importantly the airport which is the most first thing you go for is the airport and then and then the communications places like the television but you're only you're, you're only the quick reaction force because what's going to happen you can't be left out there just with 5,000 guys you've got to have a logistical train outside willing to come in you've also got to be willing to send in a much bigger force this is the danger uh, that if the quick reaction force, the spearhead, uh, which I remember the British Army when they decided to do that earlier in, in Europe, used to be totally contemptuous of it, used to call it the spearmint force, because the idea you went in there, it was just you go in there gum chewing, but where are the guys behind you? And that's the danger. You're actually into something which get into something much bigger afterwards.
2: Britain will lead the very high readiness task force in 2017. Suggests long term.
4: Well, yeah. And what, what does it? Um, I suppose so. But I mean, twenty seventeen is only is not even a couple of years away now. Uh, and military thinking has to go on for much longer than that. You've got to assume that you're going to be there for some considerable time. The other thing with ground forces, when you put ground forces into an, another area, or even have command control centres over, let's say, five countries. It's very, very difficult to get them out.
2: So um, let's talk about the diplomacy in all of this because we have U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry uh, in Russia at the moment, I believe. We have the German cha- Chancellor Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande of France, all, all on peace missions now. How are the Russians' reaction? What will they do?
4: Well, you've got Kerry going. Uh, Kerry, I think at the moment this evening is uh, is in, in, in Kiev. And the, uh, the, the German uh, uh, Chancellor and the and, and Prime Minister will, French Prime Minister will be going uh, to Kiev after him. Then they go to Moscow... Um, they're not seeing or they're not scheduled to see Putin. But the point is, they have made this announcement at the at the NATO defense ministers today. What do you do? You go banging into, in, into Moscow and say, listen, this is what we're doing. We are not going to be messed about. We are really sort of going to do this. Now, the other difficult thing is that Kerry's mission, I think, is far more important. He is going to have to go into, uh, or he is today in Kiev, and he's got to say to the Ukrainians, yes or no we're going to give you weapons, Uh, defensive weapons. Now, the the new defence secretary in Washington, he's being sort of questioned at the moment by the Senate committee to see whether he's worthy to become defence secretary. He is saying out loud now, yep, I think I could go along with the idea of defensive weapons. Now, then Moscow says, what's the difference between a defensive weapon and an offensive weapon? So watch for this. Watch for Putin ordering let's see a border incursion let's watch um, putin putting on a, on a military uh, response to this. It, 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 this is dangerous diplomacy. Christopher,
2: stay with us. Elsewhere, there's a new call for Britain to commit to more military involvement against Islamic State extremists in the Middle East. MPs on the Defence Select Committee suggest the current UK effort is as they put it, strikingly modest. Committee Chairman Rory Stewart told BFPS reporter Victoria Smith that Britain's contributing less than our NATO partners.
5: We did a, a visit to Baghdad in December and what was quite striking is that the U.K. wasn't playing as large a role as it played in previous engagements, nothing like what we did in Iraq or Afghanistan. Australia, for example, had committed 400 troops. Spain had committed 300, Italy about 300. The U.K. had three uh, military personnel outside the Kurdish areas, outside the British Embassy in Iraq. And so we don't really at the moment have much ability to understand what's going on, to understand what the Shia militia are doing, to understand what the Sunni tribes are doing, to understand how the terrorists are operating. We're flying a little bit blind, and I feel that the UK, as a global power, as a major player in the world, should be focusing more.
2: So if I understand the report correctly, you're asking for requesting or suggesting more personnel in a non-combat role?
5: Correct. Non-combat role. We're talking about people in intelligence, people in political engagement, people in plans, people in training, people located with the Iraqi Ministry of Defense or with the U.S. Central Command, trying to get a sense of who the enemy is, who our allies are, what's happening in the region and how we come up with a good plan to deal with the Islamic State. And that's what, what worries me. I don't feel that's happening at the moment.
2: What about in a combat role? What about airstrikes and even boots on the ground?
5: There's no request for boots on the ground. I mean, the, the Iraqi government has been very clear that they don't want it. In fact, it's, it's more than that. The Shia militia, who are one of the major fighting forces on the ground, have made it clear that if the coalition were to deploy combat troops, they, the Shia militia to the Baghdad government, would then attack the coalition troops, so we'd be being attacked simultaneously from ISIS and from the Shia militia. So there's no question at the moment of combat troops going on the ground. In fact, I, I can't see any possibility of that, because I don't think the populations in Europe or the United States would want that either. But there is an enormous amount we can do without putting combat troops on the ground in order to decrease the chance for civil war and increase the chance for political settlement.
2: That was Rory Stewart speaking to Victoria Smith. Well, unsurprisingly, the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon disagrees. Here he is speaking to James Hurst.
6: Well, we are making a huge contribution in Iraq. We have the second number of airstrikes through the uh, work of the RAF, flying every day and almost every night uh, over Iraq and helping the uh, Iraqi army and the Kurdish forces in their efforts to push ISIL back. That is uh, part of our contribution. We're also contributing surveillance. We're contributing training. We've been supplying Uh, arms and ammunition to the Iraqi and Kurdish forces. We've been doing all of that so we're probably making the second biggest contribution after the United States and I'm disappointed that the committee doesn't recognize
5: that.
3: But the committee say countries like Australia and Spain have hundreds of troops
5: working with the Iraqi army rather than the Kurdish army and that is where the solution to
4: this lies, the Iraqi army.
6: Well that uh, that isn't right at the moment. The Australians do have uh, have made uh, sent people to theatre but many of them are still outside Iraq uh, supporting their uh, airstrikes, their air force just as we have people in Cyprus we have nearly 600 people engaged in this operation uh, not all of them of course are in Iraq itself
2: That was Defence Secretary Michael Fallon So Christopher, of the two, which one are you siding
4: with? Um I think that Rory Stewart is a person that spent a lot of his life in in the mi- Middle East or thinking about the Middle East, and you can sense the Defence Committee is being driven uh, to what would be, I don't know, sort of uh, almost not a Lawrence of Arabia. That's as bad, but that sort of position, understanding what the problem is. Um, But it's also interesting when you hear Michael... um, Oh, the other part of it, of course, uh, which we didn't actually hear in that, is that what disturbs him, that's Rory Stewart, so enormously, is that, and I sat through those Defence Committee hearings when the Chiefs of Staff were on, Mm. Chiefs of Staff hadn't got a clue... Or if they had, they weren't saying what the outcome has got to be, what they were trying to do. And that's because they weren't getting the direction from government to say, our intention is to do the following. And so any ideas of what they might be doing, they're not actually knowing where they're trying to head for. And if you don't know what you're trying to head for, you don't know what to use. There's another, as- another aspect of this. Um, when Fallon, uh, Michael Fallon, Defence Secretary, says, well, we are doing things. We've got guys in in... in uh, in Cyprus, we have got some people on the ground. This may be enough. You may not want to get into any more. And if you think about it, he, un- unlike uh, uh, Stewart, he has to sit in his desk in main building, and he said, right, he has to say, look, give me the numbers, give mm-hmm. me the figures. And every time, for example, you, you launch a, a typhoon, it's costing you thirty-five thousand pounds an hour, just to drive it. If you want to fire a brimstone rocket. And you're going to a uh, missile, and you'll fire a brimstone missile, maybe three or four times on one operation. They're hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds each. Mm. Now, the other day when they knocked out a couple of trucks, it took three brimstones to fire uh, to knock it out. As far as Fallon is concerned, listen, this is part of the uh, of the deal. We are doing not so much as we could, but we're doing quite a lot. We send a hundred uh, yeah. machine guns up into the, the to, to the Pashmerga. We send guys up there and show them how to use them. That is quite a, a military contribution. Of course,
2: all of this happening against the backdrop, the latest twist and turn of the public atrocity of what IS has done ne- next, and, and this week it has been the official sort of showing of the burning to death of a Jordanian pilot. Um, do you think that's really going to have much influence in Whitehall thinking?
4: It won't have it in the thinking. What, they will, what they're doing now is to see if it changes the Middle East composition of the forces of the will- are willing. You, you if, might
2: think it would, wouldn't you?
4: Well, you, you might think so. If you, if, you, if you think of the pilot um, who came from one of the most powerful tribes in the whole of Jordan, who maintains royalty, who taint- keeps them in power m- in many cases, um, then you've got a conflict, you've got a political conflict. What do you do? Do you go out, do you say we will send more guys out, we'll send another squadron out? But there's a much darker question that's going on after his burning. In Washington... And, and this took place, I think, it was January the 4th. There was a meeting at the Oval Office. And they're asking the same question now in what, Whitehall. Mm. What would have happened if, a, or what would happen, if an American pilot went down? Mm. If it was a British pilot in that cage, uh, what will they do? What will their political response be? What will their military response be? And how can you sort of guess what those consequences yeah. might be.
2: Uh, also in the spotlight this week has been Britain's last intervention in Iraq. Sir John Chilcot Gil- 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 if I can get the words out, has been before the Foreign Affairs Committee. What happened there exactly and what do you make of it?
4: Well, basically, uh, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee has been sitting for a, 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 ever in a day, I mean six years, and they still haven't got... The, um, the, the Chilcott Committee still hasn't got its report out. Um, and John Chilcott went to the Commons in front of the committee and they said, well, look, why haven't you done it and where is it? And he said, well, we're getting on with it. Mm-hmm. And it's a great <laughs> tragedy that Martin Gilbert, Sir Martin Gilbert died, in fact, a, a couple of nights ago, he's a member of the committee. But I think what it's shown, more than anything else, Sir John uh, Chilcott and the British uh, establishment in, in, in Whitehall had no idea... What was involved in this? In, involved in this inquiry? It is one of the most incompetent inquiries that one has ever watched. But it's very good for some people because the report isn't out yet.
2: Sitrep
4: with Kate
2: Still to come: insults and injuries. Why is it we cannot properly help our service veterans? This is BFBS Sitrep. Whatever the demands of the House of Commons Defence Committee that Britain should do more, the reality is someone has to pay. It's reported that President Obama has told Prime Minister David Cameron it would be a mistake to let British defence spending drop below. 2% of GDP. This week, six prominent MPs wrote to the Times newspaper that 2% should be the bottom line, not the maximum. This has been endorsed today by the former Chief of Defence Staff, Air Marshal Lord Stirrup. Well, one of the MPs was Lib Dem, Samingas Campbell, and he's in our Westminster studio now. Now, hello to you, Samingas. 2%, a long-term NATO demand for all members. The UK is one of only three or four countries that's consistently met that 2%. So what's the problem?
1: Well, the problem is, of course, that we know that after the general election, whichever party is in government, or indeed whichever parties are in government, then there is a threat of yet more substantial cuts in public spending. And what the the six of us have done today is to draw attention to the fact that at 2%, that is by no means generous, and that the kind of activities which we are asking our servicemen and women to fulfil are very difficult to do at that level. So what do you think it should be? Well, if if I'm just finished, there's also a rather embarrassing political point, which is, of course, that the United Kingdom's been going round lecturing other countries within NATO about their inability to reach that 2% level. I've done some of that myself because I lead the British delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. We, apart from being extremely damaging to our capability, it would be extremely embarrassing politically Mm. if we were to allow our defence expenditure to fall below 2%. So what, what do you think it should be? I think it should be gradually raised to a level at which we can ensure that every prime minister of whatever party has before him or her a range of military options if that is required. And not just a range of options, but the kind of resilience which enables us to go on carrying operations. Let's take the operations, for example, of which we are part in relation to ISIS. People are talking about these being sustained for three or four years. Well, in the course of that, there's absolutely no doubt that the aircraft and the spares and perhaps most importantly of all, the personnel who are responsible uh, for carrying out our operations in this regard will require replacement. Mm. And the issue is always the issue of resilience. Yes, you can go and do something for a matter of a few months. Of that, there is no doubt. The question is, can you sustain it, if that's what's necessary?
2: And all of this also against the backdrop of unusual procurement development and the MOD's bills getting bigger. Something does have to give.
1: Well, one of the problems is, of course, that inflation in defence uh, terms and the defence industry is always greater than inflation. That's kind of inflation that you and I might think about if we want to buy food or buy furniture or something of that kind. And that does mean, therefore, that there is always pressure, always has been pressure on the budget. But you've got to ask yourself this. If we are down to 82,000 regular members of the army with the hope, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence against the achievement of this hope, but with the hope of 30,000 uh, reservists, then you could argue with some conviction, I believe, that we really have stopped cutting fat, we've stopped cutting muscle, and we're really cutting into the bone. And that has an impact not only upon the lives uh, and the careers of the men and women who serve us, but it also has a very considerable impact on the range of options available to a Prime Minister.
2: Range of options. Do you think, in saving money, perhaps the aircraft carriers are in danger? Symingas Campbell. It does appear we've, we've lost him, Christopher. Um, what do you think?
4: Um, it, it's certainly true that if you talk to people in, in the Chiefs of Staff corridor, um, the Army most certainly looks around, and don't forget the Chief of Defence Staff is a soldier. Um, they look around and they say, well, Look, if the Navy came to us tomorrow and said well, we're going to build a couple of aircraft carriers, it might not get through so easily. Um, But there's another side of this, which um, I'm sad that Ming seems to have disappeared. Um, If you're going to do this successfully, what he was talking about, and that's saying, look, we may even have spent more than 2% because things are difficult now. Mm. What you've got to have behind you is this. You've got to have a government that has decided what its international policy, not just for wars, international policy, what it wants to do in the world, and then to decide what it's trying to do. Send it over to the MOD and the MOD can say, Right, the Chiefs of Staff decided this is the sort of military that you need to be able to enforce your foreign policy. And until that happens you will never really know whether your 2%, two and a half, three percent 3% is, is the right figure did, at all.
2: Did you get the impression in the way uh, that Britain is now committing to intervention, looking at, for example, in the situation in Iraq at the moment, that we're putting air power up there, but that we're not contemplating more than that? Are, are we trying to save money in the way that we go to war? Are we going to be doing that in the future?
4: I think we, it's not so much that we doing it to save money the way you go to war. I think once you've committed yourself to go to war, and um, then you throw... You know, you you throw the bank balance straight at it and you get into trouble. I mean, if you do remember about three or four years ago, about four four or five years ago, in Afghanistan, we had the then chief of the general staff, uh, General Dannett, having to hitch a ride in an American helicopter because there wasn't a British helicopter around. And he made a lot of this. Next thing, we got British helicopters in there. So you can adjust you can adjust what you what you're doing, but it becomes very, very difficult. The other side of it is if you come back to the idea that I'm talking about and say, "Look, get get your mili- get your political and diplomatic strategy and trade strategy and, in line," and then say to the military, "How can you defend that, or how can you sustain it?" That is where you've got to start from. You've got to always start from that. We don't do that at the moment.
2: Christopher, stay with us. Our thanks to Saminah Campbell as well. BFBS Zip Rep. The Royal British Legion has launched a major campaign to prevent wounded veterans having to pay for their own social care. It's called Insult to Injury and aims to help veterans injured before 2005 who are liable to pay. Laura Pett is from the Legion and joins us now. Hello, Laura. Why are those injured before 2005 being penalised in this way?
0: Well, at the moment, uh, the current guidance given to local authorities dictates that only the first £10 per week of a war pensioner's income um, can be disregarded when it comes to the means test for social care. Now this isn't the case for people on a later compensation scheme known as the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme and we think that's fundamentally unfair. The government cannot give with one hand and then take away with the other. So how much will they have to pay for their own social care? Does Does it depend on where they live? Uh, it very much does depend on their live uh, where they live some councils so 88% of councils do the bare minimum of 10 pounds in line with Uh, statutory guidance, but 12% uh, do go above and beyond that guidance and exempt all military compensation in their means tests. Now that does mean that it's quite possible for one veteran to live a street away from another veteran and their compensation will be treated entirely differently.
2: So is it literally a loophole in in how these things are named?
0: Um, I think so. Uh, We suspect that When the armed forces compensation scheme was reviewed a couple of years back, uh, it came about that the government decided that the armed forces compensation scheme, uh, people in receipt of that would be exempt from the means tests. Now the war pension scheme wasn't part of that review and so we think it's a case of it's been overlooked and we're campaigning to end that now. So what kind of services are people who are on a war pension being charged for? Uh, Social care can range from anything from support within the home, so that could be uh, meals on wheels, someone coming in to help somebody get dressed in the morning, help with childcare, to more specialist services such as you'd find in a care home or a nursing home. Well, let's hear now from a veteran who's been affected by this. He's called Keith
2: Clark and was paralysed after fighting a fire on a submarine and falling through an open hatch. He's been asked to pay an extra £100 a week for his social care. He's now in a wheelchair and he lives alone and cares for his two young sons, one of whom has special needs. Our welfare reporter, Victoria Smith, has been to see him.
7: I get help getting showered and dressed when my carer turns up. After he leaves, I then get my two boys ready for school get their breakfast, take them to school, then have to come home, do the household chores, be at the end of the phone because the problem is my eldest son suffers at school. You can get a phone call at any time of the day saying he's having a bad day, can you come and rescue him?
2: Say the money goes up, where would you get it from? How would you afford the bill from the council?
7: It would be a case of whether you pay them or pay the bills. One of the other cases is I did actually turn around to him. and I said, you know, I can't afford your independent care and try and cope by myself.
2: So you'd give up the social care for yourself so that you could pay for your sons?
7: Yeah. Or the other thing is to rely on family to come and do it, which takes a bit of my independence away because I don't want to rely on family to come and look after me.
2: That was Navy veteran Keith Clark. Well, Laura Pett from the Royal British Legion is still with us. Um, Laura, council blaming government cuts, uh, which means they could charge veterans even more next year, presumably.
0: Um, Quite possibly. We work with councils on a daily basis to deliver on our welfare commitments Um, so we know that councils are operating in a particularly tough financial climate and we appreciate that they're simply following the rules when it comes to injured veterans and social care so that's why we're calling on the UK and devolved governments to establish a ring fence fund within their health budgets which is what happened in October 2012 Mm. when they decided to do so for the Armed Forces Compensation Scheme Christopher?
4: Um, Laura, tell me this one Um, you said local councils got to follow the rules, yeah? And you have to sort of accept that. What I want to know is that given the modern history of the British and their military and what they've relied upon, given the way that the United States, our biggest ally, looks after their vets, who is responsible for this seemingly unfeeling uh, decision-making and this system? Uh, is it the... Uh, it's, not the military, it's not the military. Is it the politicians or is it the civil servants in Whitehall?
0: I'm not sure uh, who is directly responsible but what I know and what the Legion knows is that we have an armed forces covenant which outlines the duty of care that the government has to give to our veterans on behalf of the nation. Now that's applies at both the national level and the local level and so that's why we're calling on local politicians and national politicians to get their act together and treat all injured veterans with the respect uh, that they deserve and that's befitting of their years of service just you, Laurie, sorry to interrupt uh, just to
2: find out more what can people do
0: Uh, We're encouraging all your listeners, um, if they feel uh, as strongly about this as we do, to go to our website, um, and they can contact their MP directly through that. And that way, together, we can ensure that everyone gets the fairness they deserve. All
2: right, Laura Pett from the Royal British Legion, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, before we finish today, let's talk about events uh, elsewhere. And there's been an important ruling in The Hague, in the International Court there. Tell us more about that.
4: That's right. Um, During the Balkans' war, The Serbians were accused internationally of committing genocide against the Croatians. And the Croatians said this as well. The International Court this week has ruled that under the 1948 United Nations resolution on genocide, there's no case to answer. And
2: this is a clause where you have to prove intent to commit genocide. You have to. That's
4: right. The second clause in, in, in the resolution says, did this person, this general, this country... Uh, this leadership, did they say, for example, take a bunch of guys down there and wipe out 2,000 people at Shrebrenica, or whatever you want to say. You have to prove that was their intention to commit genocide. If you can't prove it, then that is the basic argument, which means the court will not hear even not a question of whether it will go to trial unless it will be organised on. They will see no grounds for what, actually bringing it. What,
2: what do you think the ramifications could be of this in terms enormous, of for
4: enormous human rights? Yeah, inor- enormous ra- ramifications. So say, I mean, when you consider what's going on in the Middle East now. And everybody says, you do hear people saying, well, that's, that's genocide. Or you hear what was going on in Libya, that's genocide. And the United Kingdom forces are involved in this because it's something which every soldier, certainly grounds, anybody who's working on the ground has to think about quite, rather quickly.
2: I'm going to put you on the spot with something rather tricky and um, might be impossible for you to do. Can you think of something cheery we can talk about for next week?
4: Well, yes, we can. Go on. I think the <laughs> so, um, HMS, HMS victory nelson's flagship hms victory uh is in a poor state and they're trying to not re-
2: looking good so far on the happy front
4: it is it's looking even it'll look b- even better and there's a bunch of guys uh are trying to put together a big fundraising thing but a fundraising of experts mm. of experts that could put that remarkable ship back together properly but i tell you one thing nelson didn't think much of it he 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 liked the Agamemnon. So it was a better, it was a better ship.
2: <laughs> well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS Sitrep. And remember, you can listen again on our website. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening, and speak to you soon. Bye bye.
5: Sports Sports. and music Music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio
1: 2.